And you know Gen Z prizes uh, authenticity above all else. I've heard that, yeah. I think that's... Or is that millennials? I, I forget which one. Everyone younger than us. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 28th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from New York is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. You actually are in a bunker today. <laughs> no, I'm in a closet, <laughs> which well, is different. Same thing. Oh, sorry. That's different. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've had to. Uh, I figured out the closet was the place to um, dampen some of the uh, audio issues that we had a few weeks ago. So apologies to all the listeners who had to put up with my echoey voice uh what was it two three episodes ago you know the echo just means that it's real this is authentic we are truly we're uh, <laughs> we're we're real podcasters uh from los angeles is 538 contributor jeff foster hi jeff hi sarah how are you <laughs> i'm good how are you wow you sound dejected jeff no i feel great i'm in agreement what is what is behind is that what's hanging next to your head these are blankets <laughs> That's part of my uh, my amateur uh, noise dampening system. I like uh, pulling back the curtain here on the, on how we podcast from home or the pulling back the, the blanket. Pulling back yeah, the blanket. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yep, and that's the show. It's great talking to you guys. Uh, so, hey, we got a couple of upsets in the WNBA playoffs, um, not not for the Liberty, although they did look way better than we thought that they would look against the, the Mercury last week. But the Mercury then beat the number four Storm in, in overtime, and the number six Sky took care of the number three Lynx. So... There's uh there was already there's already some some fun in these uh in these playoffs the semifinals start tonight which should be very exciting. On today's show we'll talk about Tom Brady's upcoming trip to New England and where the Brady Belichick discourse stands now. Then we'll talk about the delightful chaos in college football for neutral fans anyway. And finally we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We've completed three weeks of the 2021 NFL season, which means there have been 20 regular season NFL slates since the duo of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady were on a field together. We'll finally get them facing each other this weekend when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers head up to New England to take on the Patriots. As you can imagine, the Brady versus Belichick narrative is back in full force. So much so that NBC put out a dramatic promo for the game and picked a very special song to play behind alternating images of Brady in a Buccaneers jersey and hordes of New England fans. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet. So I, I literally, truly laughed out loud when I saw that melodramatic Adele ad for the first time. <laughs> what? Can we talk about that? Sure. What? I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't think it was that bad. I 
just thought it was so overwrought. Yeah, but what do you expect? I mean, it's a football promo. Like, what? What are there a lot of like <laughs> understated, sarcastic football promos? They're all earnest and overwrought. So might as well lean into it. This is. I mean, is this this game's probably going to be the highest? This probably will be the highest rated regular season game of all time. I'm guessing, right? Or at least of Sunday night history i suppose but the game itself is probably going to be bad yeah but everyone's going to want to at least see what happens i mean because because there's there's two ways to sort of envision this going down and i think you can make a legitimate case for each i mean obviously the the more likely scenario is that far superior (laughs) team will win with ease but i think everyone's going to want to tune in and just at least see the aesthetics of brady being in the uh, those (laughs) much different uniforms um and on the other sideline and in uh, you know walking on it in that crowd i mean everyone at least i think will want to see the beginning to see what that looks like and what the fir- what happens in the first couple series right but aren't we used to brady in a bucks uniform at this point he won he won a super bowl like is it still no I, i'm used to that i mean i guess it's just being at that stadium and and you know with that crowd and with belichick on the other side i mean it's fascinating Definitely. And I think um, it, it was a good parallel that was brought up in the um, the Peyton Manning, Eli Manning Monday Night Football broadcast last night. They were talking to LeBron James, and he compared it to his first time back in Cleveland after the decision. Uh, it's a little bit different in terms of the circumstances, but I do think that like we will be watching the crowd reaction uh, in the same way and just trying to kind of figure out like, you know, we'll, we'll also be, this is a favorite with Belichick when he faces former coaches, former players, whatever, we'll be like micro dissecting all of the different, um, like interactions that he has and, you know, sort of like the body language as he like shakes someone's hand or says something to them. (laughs) You know, we all remember like the Eric Mangini blow off after Spygate uh, or Josh McDaniels after, you know, all these like, um, frankly, often failed Belichick protégés returning and then his uh, Belichick's reaction to them. This is a not so failed former protégé, not a coaching protégé, but player wise who is who is now returning. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a very uh, I think it's a fascinating situation between the two of them wow am i the only one who i who's just like ugh, fine whatever well i mean here's your problem you hate tom brady and you hate the patriots um i'm not saying that i'm that different i think i probably like brady more than you for a certain college background um he may have allegedly (laughs) um but but at the end of the day i think that the football fan of me is just curious as to how it goes down. But I don't think it'll be surprising what reaction you yeah. get. I mean, I think you yeah. better get a like warm welcome, like six Super Bowls, please. I mean, this isn't like KD returning to Oklahoma right. City where like the fans are openly feel scorned. I mean, it's nothing like that. Actually, it's the opposite. So it, it's more actually from a, like a tactical point of view, what 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 goes down. Belichick is is interesting, I think, because it's harder to... I mean, we might not know whether Brady, you know, could have done what he did on a worse team. He obviously didn't with the last team he was on with New England. But Belichick now having other quarterbacks um, over the past two seasons uh, has not gone great. Neil, do our ELO stats paint kind of a clearer picture of how Belichick has performed with other quarterbacks through the years when Brady was out and then now since Brady, you know, relative to their expectations? 
I think they do. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, Belichick's record with Brady at quarterback, the winning percentage was 76.9%. With all other quarterbacks, it's 45.7%. Now, you might say, well, this is what you get when your other quarterbacks are Vinny Testaverde and sort of decline phase Drew Bledsoe and a washed up Cam Newton and Mike Tomzak and Todd Philcox and Eric Zier and a rookie Mac Jones. I could go on. So you, you do have sort of like a lesser caliber of quarterback to kind of work with uh, in his, you know, when he's not coaching Tom Brady. But even if you look at it compared with the pregame win probabilities that we have based on ELO ratings, which do take into account quarterback quality when when making the predictions with Brady the Belichick teams won at a rate 8.9 percentage points more than you would expect based on their pregame win probabilities without Brady though though uh, Belichick has won at a rate 5.1 percentage points lower than you would expect based on the pregame win probabilities so uh, his his 457 winning percentage without Brady really should be 50.8 percent because um, based on the the pregame win probabilities if if we're sort of expecting you to win at the rate that Elo predicted and you can even see this in other areas I think it gets a little bit cloudier when you look at the other areas of um, place so so, like, for instance, we would think just based on Brady's performance at quarterback that he was worth about 3.3 points per game more than an average quarterback, you know, just purely based on his own stats, knowing nothing else about, you know, the running game and the various other, you know, factors that are kind of intangible that maybe the quarterback does have an effect on. And when Belichick was coaching Brady, the, uh, the Patriots' defenses were also exactly 3.3 points per game better than expected in terms of you know what their opponents usually score. Uh, so it takes into account strength of opposing offense. That to me is kind of funny because it does sort of suggest that Belichick's, if, if you attribute the whole defense to him, which maybe you don't, but that's sort of his calling card, uh, that, that Belichick and the Patriots' defense were worth 3.3 points per game above average. And Brady himself at quarterback was worth 3.3 points per game above average. The funny thing is, though, that Brady's offenses always exceed those expectations based on just the pure stats of the quarterback. Like, for instance, in his career, his teams have scored 3.4 more points per game than we would expect relative to average based on just knowing how well the quarterback played. Uh, and that really came out last year in Tampa, where his own performance we would expect to really just be worth 2.8 points per game above average. But the offense actually exceeded that expectation by 4.9 points per game. So they were a 7.7 points per game better than average offense. And and really, um, a lot of that, like, yeah, it's the supporting cast and the weapons that he has. And, you know, they're a very well-rounded team, and, and they exceeded expectations by a bunch of different metrics, I think. Um, but, but to me, it's interesting that sort of Brady seemed to have the ability to, beyond just his own quarterback stats, engineer better offense offenses. And this is across a bunch of different offensive coordinators and quarterback coaches. You know, he had Charlie Weiss, he had Bill O'Brien. His best numbers of his whole career came under Bill O'Brien, if you look at it just statistically, purely. And this is a guy that later would be sort of, um, you know, ridiculed for his uh, lack of football acumen running the Houston Texans. So I think you can kind of paint this picture of Brady being able to sort of pull an offense 
to become more than the sum of its parts based on the numbers. And Belichick, you know, doesn't really seem to be able to do that with teams that Brady wasn't the quarterback of. If anything, they're sort of slightly less than the sum of their parts. And that's an interesting thing to say about a guy that, you know, has been widely hailed as the greatest coach of all time. Yeah, I I think there's some noise in there, though. I mean, because you think back on that 2008 season when Brady goes down in in week one and then they go 11 and five with Matt Castle, who never really did anything anywhere else. That, to me, was a sort of testament to coaching, and ironically, that was often what people pointed to when they were like, Brady's, Brady's you know, being carried by Belichick, if you were making that case, which um, look, seems silly now. And then I think what what is kind of weighting that down is last year with the Cam Newton experiment, which clearly didn't work. I don't think uh, Belichick really knew how to, or really anyone, <laughs> knew how to uh, produce a winning team with Cam, who just was very underwhelming, you know, except for those couple or early performances. Well, Jeff, that's right. And but uh, that's interesting that like Matt Castle is a 15 game sample, right? Uh of starting at least uh because he started starting in week 2. Cam Newton is also a 15 start sample. Uh, and this it's almost polar opposites, right? Like we can't say that okay, here's Matt Castle, a guy that didn't do anything elsewhere and they were able to engineer a good season out of him and and the team overall with this guy. Cam Newton's a guy that did a lot elsewhere and they were not able to engineer anything in that 15 game sample. So shouldn't those cancel each other no, out? No, 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 cuz I think what happened was the the you look at on either side of that 2008, I mean 2009 uh, Patriots and 2007 Patriots are way different than the team that Newton was inheriting the 2020. I mean, it, it was a, a worse version of a team that was already kind of bad with Brady. And I think on top of it being a COVID year and having all those guys sit down, it was even worse than it was. It should have been on paper. I think I think an interesting thing here to me is, you know, the 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 idea of the debate of Brady versus Belichick. The last year that they were together, neither one of them could elevate that team you know that they made the playoffs but lost in the wild card round they lost to Tennessee um they were okay they were I mean they were they were better than average but not great and and then now we want to talk about well you know can each of them do it alone and the thing is that none of them could ever do it alone they couldn't do it alone they couldn't do it just together (laughs) football is a team sport yes obviously the quarterback is the most important role and and coaches can certainly sink teams as we see all the time um and is is playing out right now in the nfl but you really do have to have the weapons and maybe that is on belichick for not team building better recently well yeah belichick also happens to be the gm of this team so you sort of sit there and you're like well what how how is belichick supposed to coach around uh these lack of weapons that brady has and this that and the other and it's like yeah he's the one that went and got the lacking weapons right although you also can't like you can't play for them right like some some players have been have not panned out and and that just happens too um so there's a little bit of that i think too and I think he's smart enough to realize, and I think this is, you know, part of the decision making when they moved on from him, and who knows actually how that went down. But having a rookie quarterback on again as a cap hit in terms of team building is just the way to build a team. Um, not having to commit a bunch of money to that position and still being able to succeed is, is the is the formula right now. And I think he's smart enough to realize that. And I think the idea of um, rebooting versus sticking with a guy who's 
in his early 40s, you know, on at least based on history and based on the current landscape of the NFL seem like the smart move. Does he regret it now? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know if Brady would be successful throwing to Jacoby Myers and, and this group of players. There are going to be a lot of expatriates in that. Well, I guess, is Antonio Brown still out? I mean, he was a Patriot yeah. for all of one what, game. One game. Caught a touchdown. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because this game really isn't going to be an answer to this debate at all. I mean, we assume that, that Tampa is, is going to win pretty easily just based on what what's happening. We're going to need a couple years to see if Mac Jones pans out or what what this rebuild kind of looks like to know whether this was the right move at the time for them. It is just I just can't get over how funny it is that. Brady went on to just immediately win a Super Bowl. Like, that's just such a good joke, you know? <laughs> well, and the other factor is that uh, Brady is pretty close to Drew Brees' all-time record for passing yards uh, and could break it in this game. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that is enough. He needs 67. I'm pretty sure Tom Brady's going to have at least 67 passing yards in this game. So I feel like all of the this has to kill Bill Belichick, but all of the circumstances going into this, it's like, okay, the the Bucks are better. Brady instantaneously won a Super Bowl, like you said, Sarah. <laughs> he could break the all-time freaking record for uh, re- uh, passing yards in a career in this game. Uh, and, and it's just like everything is sort of lined up to have the the narrative energy be telling us that it was all Brady and that Belichick was overrated. Whatever, however it's uh, talked about afterwards, it will be, it will have an Adele song playing in the background. That, that is what matters. <laughs> well, we know no matter what happens, Belichick's post-game press conference will be boring. It'll just be didn't execute <laughs> in any phase, all three phases of the game. Yeah, Tom's a good player. Yeah, good players win. He seemed pissed the other day I mean, when they asked pissed. him what what he saw in He's Mac Jones's in Mac Jones's interception. He literally said nothing for like forty five seconds and then was just like mumbled. I guess it's the same thing that you saw. Yeah, and then it was like moved on. We've talked about this already. Belichick is the master of the uncomfortable silence. Like I have to fill every silence, and he is just he's just sit there. He sit, he is comfortable in in dead air. I love it. All right. Well, I guess we'll find out what the narrative is going to be. Um, I uh, I hope it's a I hope it's a fun one. I hope it's just super wrong. That's always fun. Um, before we leave the the end of our NFL discussion, let's make our our survivor pool picks for week four. We each have two points so far, so you know nobody make a mistake the rest of the season, and we'll all be fine. Um, all right, the pick order for this week is me, Jeff, Neil. So I am going to. Oh, you know what? I'm going to pick that. I'm going to pick the Thursday night game. This Thursday night yes. game is going to be bad and maybe borderline unwatchable. Bengals, Jaguars, but um, Jaguars are bad, and I'm going to go with the Bengals. That is the pick I'm going to make. Okay. That makes it easy for me. I'm going to take the Bills. Huge favorites. Um, they look great. Houston um, with Davis Mills. Woof. I don't know. Um, all right, Neil. Yeah, this one is going to be interesting because I'm very tempted to take uh, the most inconsistent Jekyll and Hyde team ever in the New Orleans Saints at home against the Giants. Do I pull the trigger, though, on that? Do I trust Jameis? Because it's really like he'll, he's had good game, horrible game, good game. So clearly he's due for a horrible game next, right? <laughs> um, so I think I'm—oh, man, this is tough. Uh 
I am going to take I'm going to take the Tennessee Titans yeah. despite being on the road but against the Jets. Yeah, I feel like the lesson of the season so far is I'm not sure who the good teams are, but I do know who the bad teams are. So, we can go with that. It's with against Zach Wilson who, oh my goodness. It's, it does not look good for the Jets already. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, poor guy. I mean, he's <laughs> running for his life. It's rough. The Saints are weird, though. That is, I think it's actually a good stay away because if you look historically, you know, in betting circles, this is talked about a lot, but Jameis is bad as a favorite and great as an underdog. And and oddly, another trend is that uh, Daniel Jones is great on the road and terrible at home. So you got both those trends working against that. So that is interesting. Both working against it. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, we'll see how those picks play out. For now, let's take a break and we'll be back in a moment to talk about college football. The first month of the college football season has been very chaotic and full of upsets. Six ranked teams lost just this last weekend. Probably the most notable school to underperform its expectations is Clemson, which has now lost two games, its opening day matchup against Georgia and last weekend's game against NC State, who beat the Tigers in double overtime. Clemson is now hanging on by a thread in the AP poll as the 25th ranked team. On the Andy Staples show, Ari Wasserman talked about how that loss to NC State may end up being a turning point for the program. Clemson finished uh, number five in the recruiting rankings in 2021. They had three five-star players, 14 four-stars. Alabama had seven five-stars and 16 four-stars. Ohio State had seven five-stars and 13 four-stars. That might not seem like a difference, but that's a a difference of what? uh, Six or seven high-end blue-chip prospects. That's the difference between them and Alabama and Ohio State. You do that over a course of a four-year period, that's 25 less elite-level players that you have on your roster in a, in a given time. And I know that they can... They, they Clemson and Dabo, for sure, are the best talent evaluators. I think we've said that and given them their due for that. And they do things their own way. But I'm just wondering, like, as things go, their last two exits from the college football playoff were in blowout fashion. Granted, one was in the national championship game. And now they're going to miss the playoff. You know, I think 99% likely they're going to miss it this year. And I just, I wonder if Clemson is going to be Clemson or they're going to take a step back on the national scale, especially if Georgia continues to do what they're doing this year and maybe Oregon makes the playoff. I mean, it just seems like a very critical juncture for their program. The recruiting point is an interesting one. Jeff, has Clemson fallen short enough there that it might impact their ability to be competitive going forward? I don't think so. I think Dabo has earned enough capital based on what he's done, um, you know, in the Lawrence years and then, you know, Deshaun Watson years going back before that, that, you know, one down year is not going to impact recruits. I mean, I think it would take, and I know this, you know, speaking from history of a sort of blue blood college football fan, that you can still get recruits to go to a team based on the brand and the history and the, and, and the coach, um, even, even if you're coming off a sort of underwhelming, uh, season. I think you could still make the case that this is the best place, you know, for a high school star to go. Um, if Dabo were to leave, let's say, I don't know, take Nick Saban's job, which 
who knows, maybe that happens in a few years, then I think you could see a real downturn in, in Clemson. But as long as he's there and he's like got this reputation as this rah-rah guy, I think he'll be able to, I think they're going to be fine. I really don't agree with this take, I guess is what I'm getting at. Because he says, what does he say, three, four star, three five stars and 14 four stars. That's an amazing amount of talent. It might not be as good as Alabama. It's, nothing is ever as good as Alabama, okay? It might not be good as Ohio State, who has looked a little shaky also with as much talent as they have out there, um, you know, already with one loss and, and some, you know, going through some bumps in the road, I think, with a new quarterback. But, I mean, granted, they'll probably improve as the year goes on. I fully expect that. But that, look, compare Clemson's recruiting class to what they're going against in the ACC. Compare that to Wake's recruiting class, or compare that to Georgia Tech's recruiting class, or Thanks, NC Jeff. State. <laughs> yeah, Georgia Tech, by the way, let's mention it uh, had a had a nice win, so good for them. Yeah, no, it looked they're, good. They're uh, we, we can beat UNC. <laughs> we can't beat Clemson uh, under any circumstances, even when they're in a down year. Mm-hmm. But we we sure can uh, hold Over our own with opponent. UNC. I guess what I'm saying is like all they have to do is win out in the ACC, and that is more than enough talent to do that and they probably should be doing it this year but obviously they're not going anywhere this year the thing about this take that i think is is funny is it's an example of an extremely small sample size the sample size of five star recruits between programs is like uh, so three versus seven oh if you extrapolate that over four years that's 25 percent of talent well that's not you can't think about five-star recruits like that also four-star recruits are also very I mean like you that that's just not how that that works I mean talent recruiting rankings can't be extrapolated like that so I think to to say that about Clemson and then look at these two losses and be like well they're that's done they're you know they're over they're not going to be competing for a national championship ever again it's like I think no I don't think that's right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, they don't. Yeah. And, and it's, it's you know, it's not 100% predictiveness for, you know, a five star being better than a four star. But what I was going to say is that I think that this is sort of you're, you're seeing people have been waiting for this from Clemson for a while. Right. Because before roundabout, you know, certainly before Debo came. Uh, they, you know, they were a good but not great program. They they had some history. You know, they had won a national championship. But aside from that, you know, in the '90s and in the the most of the 2000s, they were not really a force on the same caliber as like an SEC school. And I think that that bothers people who are sort of followers or fans of programs that are supposed to be good. You know, you've got programs that uh, we we talked about some of them, like Texas and USC, they're supposed to be good, but they have not been anywhere near as good as Clemson uh, in in the past decade. Uh, And there's this idea that Clemson is just sort of this like party crasher, right? That they are, they're not a program that's on the same level and that it, uh, there has to be some time in which the magic runs out and Cinderella has to leave the ball uh, because her her carriage turns into a pumpkin. So I think they've been waiting for this moment of like, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be an SEC caliber school in the ACC. So we can't wait for you to go away. I think the opposite will happen if Texas is ever good. Like, well, this is what we were expecting all along. Like they'll be welcomed with open arms because of the recruiting stuff. And but that's Alabama. That's Alabama had the same thing happen, right? And uh, you know they were not that great in the '90s and the in the early 2000s. And then Nick Saban comes. Uh, but but we sort of treat it differently, and we're like, oh well, the, because Bear Bryant was their coach 
you know, 50 years ago, uh, we expected them to yeah. kind of always have this. Whereas with Clemson, it's like they didn't have as much of a rich history. But I mean, who does have as rich a history as Alabama, you know? Yeah, that that does seem to be um, problematic. Well, all right. So we are actually putting up our college football forecast on the site tomorrow, which is very exciting. We didn't do one last year because of not even knowing if all the teams were playing until pretty deep in the in the season. Um, but our our model thinks that Clemson has only about a five percent chance to make the playoffs, which is like, well, there's a chance, so that's something. <laughs> I mean, it it should be zero. It's, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Um, but, but Neil, talk to us a little bit about the forecast and what, what our model is telling us. Yeah, so just as kind of a refresher, this model, it uses uh, football power index from ESPN uh, to simulate every game of the rest of the season, which is similar to the other models that we use when we're trying to simulate things. But the twist also is that there's a component that tries to predict how the selection committee will react to those simulated results. And that's something that is different in this model than any of our other ones, because the other ones are pretty straightforward. You know, your playoff system is based on standings and you play roughly equal schedules. And then, you know, there's a rules about who can make the playoffs. And there's a lot of very annoying tiebreakers that you have to program in that, that we always uh, have fun with. Uh, but, but it's kind of a structured system. Whereas in this one, just a bunch of people's opinions uh, on, on who the best teams are. And so we try to model that. We made some tweaks to it over the years to try to make it more accurate because when we started it, we were kind of going from scratch. We uh, started it the first year that there was a playoff, and so there was no history to kind of go off of. And, and we've you know tweaked it to try to match what we've seen now that we have a sample of actual playoff selections. But yeah, essentially that's how it works. And right now we have Alabama big surprise as the uh, the team most likely to make the playoff at 55%, followed very closely by UGA at 54%. Uh, and then you have Oklahoma at 39%, Oregon at 32%, and Notre Dame at 25%. So those five teams are all above 25%. Uh, and But then you have a bunch of teams below them that are in that 10 to 20% range. You got Iowa, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Ole Miss, Florida, Michigan State, and Cincinnati. And then a bunch of teams that are in that 5 to 10% range as well. That it does include Texas and Arkansas, Baylor, UCLA, even NC State uh, is in that conversation. Wake Forest, Oklahoma State, Clemson, we mentioned they were at 5%. So I think that with all those teams bunched between uh, 10% and 55%, that's pretty different than what we've seen in the past because in the past we've had like Bama or some of these other teams, Ohio State, be at like 70% already by this stage of the season and not as many teams, uh, you know, hanging on with some chance. I mean, there's a real chance for, for teams like Michigan State and Cincinnati, uh, you know, especially if they run the table. The, that's the other interesting part is you have a lot of teams that are undefeated or have only one loss, uh, you know, at this point in that conversation. And these are teams that, yeah, they might not be, they might not have a high odds of making the playoff as things stand right now because we see some tough games in their future. But if they run the table, they could potentially make it. There are eight teams right now that if they win out, they would have essentially a 95 or higher percent chance of making the playoff. And those are the teams that basically control their own destiny uh, as far as these things go. 
so the teams that control their own destinies in that sense are Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Michigan, Oregon, Florida, Notre Dame, and Ohio State. So you have a couple of teams there that have a loss already, but if they win out over the rest of the season, uh, they would be essentially locks to make the playoff. And then there's some interesting teams in there that if they went out, they wouldn't be locks, but they would kind of seem to give the committee trouble. Like NC State, for instance, if it wins the rest of its games, we think it would have a 77% chance of making the playoff. Cincinnati, if it goes undefeated, 60% chance. And then you have a team like Coastal Carolina who's undefeated and has a very high chance of winning out. They have a 22% chance of winning out, which is higher than UGA even. They have only are at 21% to win out. And yet we think that if Coastal Carolina wins all of its games, and this is coming on the heels of that 11-1 and season last year, they almost went undefeated last year, they would only have a 3.5% chance of making the playoff if they went out. So it's interesting to kind of play with those permutations, and those are things that you can actually do in the, in the interactive that we have. You can kind of play around with results of of not only the next week of games, but also whether or not a team runs the table over the rest of the season and how that affects the odds going forward. I, I actually think Cincinnati's in a great spot because they, if they win at Notre Dame um, this weekend, their rest of their schedule is very, very winnable. I mean, they have UCF at home and, and Tulsa and SMU at home, and then you look at their temple, jeez. Um, and... You look at their road games, there's not really a tough one out there. So I think they're kind of in the driver's seat. I expect them to beat Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame's kind of a little fraudulent, almost losing to Florida State, who is 0-4. Oh, Florida State is so bad. Really almost losing (laughs) at Toledo and then kind of not looking great against Wisconsin until the Wisconsin quarterback starts Throwing a pick six on fourth quarter of that game, pick yeah. six on every play, which you'll and returning, uh, you know, kickoffs for touchdowns that they'll probably win. Um, so Cincinnati is really interesting to me. I mean, a team like Penn State, like, I mean, sure, if they went out, they're gonna they're gonna make it, but like they have at Iowa, at Ohio State at Michigan State, at Maryland, like none of those are easy. I love looking at our this the our dashboard because the you can see the the odds of each team winning out the the big four all have you know above 10 percent. and then you get to the you get to the big 10 and the teams are all like uh four percent five percent three percent like because they're gonna all face each other and just like murder each other and the big 10 seems good this year (laughs) seems pretty strong and seems like it's gonna that's gonna present a, a problem to each other to figure out which um which the the big the best team is i think if one of those teams can distinguish itself that's going to be you know i think it feels like a playoff spot will be locked up there if, if one of those teams can win out and that team will probably be ohio state <laughs> <laughs> so then do we think that the ohio state loss to oregon will matter or are we just if there are one losses to oregon at the beginning of the year they'll be fine that's true of all of those big 10 teams, which is, by the way, that means a lot saying uh, uh, coming from you, Sarah, because you're usually very down on the Big Ten just as a general rule. I know. That's how you know it's true because that's how you know it's true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You hate Um, them. The fact that their loss was Oregon. I mean, we have seen in the playoff, um, you know, decision making who you lose to. Like, look, at not to bring up Iowa State, but like the fact that their early loss was to Louisiana, you know, they never really 
last year, they never really were considered because that loss, at least on paper, looks so bad. Um, they, it just gave them such a bigger hill to climb where if you're losing to another team that's already in the playoff or could be in the playoff, like with Oregon, like it's almost like it barely in its out of conference, it barely even matters. Yeah, no, that's 100 percent true. I mean, and, and, and it would be Ohio State's only loss. I don't feel like I feel like they're going to lose. I don't think there's going to be an, unde- yeah, a, an undefeated team through the Big Ten slate. I just don't. I feel like they're they're everyone's gonna lose some game. None of them have looked unbeatable, you know. Um, so I think that's that's fun. That's fun, right? Like the chaos is fun. It sort of feels like some of the the bigger upsets. Um, I mean, obviously NC State happened, but some of the more interesting upsets, like were near upsets, like you know Toledo almost beating Notre Dame, or even last week Georgia State like shockingly almost beating Auburn when Auburn was favored by four touchdowns, Oklahoma out there booing Spencer Rattler, who was the Heisman favorite before the year and almost losing to West Virginia, Um, Oregon, uh, you know, they almost lost to Fresno. And then, you know, they, they weren't like, they had a big fourth quarter, but they weren't exactly blowing the doors off Arizona. Who's bad. So I, I don't know. I feel like the Pac-12 is headed towards another year where every team w- loses two games and no one goes to the playoffs. Um, despite how good that Oregon win was over Ohio State, I, I still like am dubious that they can run the table because it just seems to never happen in that conference. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be some really big upsets coming. Uh, it just seems like the bigger teams, even the elite you know, untouchable teams have shown some some vulnerability. So I'm should be interesting. Yeah, I think the game I'm most excited for this weekend is Arkansas Georgia because Arkansas, what a fun team, what a fun story that oh, Arkansas yeah. is getting. You know, we talked about that from the perspective of Texas a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we kind of crapped on Arkansas a I, few weeks hey, ago. Yeah. Check the tape. I was out there saying they're a good team. Sam Pittman's done an amazing job uh, turning that team that around. Is, that is fair, Jeff. And I even I said, look, they're not as bad as these kind of recent history numbers would, would have you believe. Right. It was more just funny. And I stand by laughing at that outcome um, from the perspective of Texas. But I do think, you know, this is a chance. Now, I don't think that Arkansas is going to win the SEC. But I do think this is an interesting opportunity to see, to, to test for Arkansas to test itself against Georgia, for Georgia to get, like, a pretty stiff test. Yes, Clemson, you know, that was supposed to be a stiff test, but as it turns out, Clemson maybe maybe not so good. So this will be another chance for Georgia um, to to strengthen its resume because, you know, this always happens with Georgia that it it comes down to Georgia and Alabama, and Georgia's been on the, the wrong side of that ledger um, most often. So I think this will be a really good game for us to learn more about both of those teams and the state of the top teams yeah i agree and it's an interesting game because it's a real strength against strength you have probably the best running team in the country uh with arkansas against by far the best run defense so yeah i don't know you know when that happens i never know (laughs) what that means you know are you sort of neutralizing the other team's best advantage by being able to run well or, or are you taking away the other team's best Arkansas's only real weapon, which is running the ball on every play. Well, uh, hopefully we'll have some more upsets coming this weekend. Just keep the the chaos going. I love to see it. We'll uh, we will see what happens with college football, but I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and then we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 
538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. But this week, we are turning the rabbit hole into a bit of a get off my green, get off my fairway, one, one of those, uh, because the Ryder Cup concluded over the weekend. The U.S. turned in a convincing win, especially impressive, when Europe had won nine out of the previous 12 cups. Team USA did this in no small part by going long off the tee. Friend of 538 and Golf.com editor Nick Piastowski wrote a piece that examined the driving distances of the past 20 American Ryder Cup teams. This year's 12-man crew averaged 305.2 yards in driving distance last season on the PGA Tour, the second longest average ever for an American team, just half a yard behind the 2018 team. But it was more than four yards better than this year's European team average. And as Bryson DeChambeau was booming drives throughout the Ryder Cup, it seemed like that was all working out. (laughs) Some of those shots were like, oh, yeah, yep, this is why. This is why people, even when they don't like Bryson, are like, yeah, he's on my team. That that works out pretty well, right? Yeah. 417-yard drive, I think, was uh, one of the ones he had. Yeah. Like, what is that? That's that's like a video game. You know, I I saw that the I thought one of the funniest takeaways from the Ryder Cup was that Bryson DeChambeau's popularity was probably at an all time high this last weekend playing for the United States against Europe without wearing the hat that everyone hates when he wears it. (laughs) Oh, the, it was, I can't, I know I've talked about the hat, but it was so refreshing to see a normal non-newsboy hat on him. I liked him more immediately just because of the hat. Yep. It's amazing how much the hat bothers me. But I know some people are, you know, aren't, don't feel as passionately yeah. about this, but I'm, I'm in that camp. Yeah, it's very strange how like so that was Payne Stewart's thing um, when uh, the, the late Payne Stewart um, and he was one of the most popular players. And now you have Bryson wearing that hat and, you know, he's not the most popular players uh, or at least he's one of the most polarizing players. So I'm thinking maybe it's like maybe it's just a Bryson thing and not a hat. thing. Uh, it's both. It's both. It, it's partially a hat thing. It's probably because he's so thick and big that the hat just feels like so tight on his head. Like it doesn't feel natural. Uh, well, we we also wanted to not not just talk about Bryson and his hat, but to zoom out for a second here and talk about the structure of the Ryder Cup, which uses match play in golf. So my hot take is I don't like match play, but I'm curious about you guys what you think about about match play. Jeff, do you have do you have strong opinions about match play? My hot take is I agree with you, Sarah. I don't like it either. I, I actually just, you know, it, it, a lot, it's funny how much people like you hear in like just golf, uh, golf Twitter and, and golf uh, fans and golf podcasts talk about how great match play is. But I've never really been that into it. You know, I actually really liked, you know, people were saying they should do match play in the Olympics. I actually really liked that the Olympic golf. I thought that was really fun that they just did a normal tournament because to me, golf and, and this is kind of a old school view is like it's the person against the course and it, every person is competing against the course and, and the end result is is just who can step up that day and we know that golf is such a strange sport that you know you have these you either have it or you don't have it especially with the putting and and the fact that one person can emerge from the you know like phil emerging out of nowhere to win that tournament this year i mean that was great and and to have just going against one individual um, feels unnatural. It doesn't really feel right. That being said, I do appreciate the sort of novelty factor of the Ryder Cup 
the fact that they have them, the, the animated nature of the players, you know, with the interacting with the crowd and, and the high fives and all that, you get a taste of like traditional team sports and see it in another sport. And I think that is kind of fun. For when it comes to match play, the thing I don't like about it is that I think it encourages an aggression that isn't really what I like about golf. What I like about golf is like that you can be, that you have to be smart in how you approach a hole, that it's not just like, you know, the um, Happy Gilmore bombs. And you have to, you have to be, you have to be smart. You have to, you you should, you should have to think about what you're doing. Um, and I think that's, that's why Bryson, the way Bryson has gone about it, ostensibly thinking about what he's doing, but really just bombing the ball as far as he can, right? And have that, that count as golf. And I, so I don't like that because I think that with match play, like you're you're the risk reward is so great that you may as well just you know bomb the try to shoot over the lake and, and call it a day and that's and you know if you go in the lake well you're just going to lose the whole it doesn't matter you're not going to lose you know you might lose the whole by five strokes but who cares because it doesn't matter so i don't like that i like the i like the the more um you really have to be smart on every hole because every hole every hole matters and your score on every hole matters i like that better about golf that's a great point sarah that's actually a great point i think that's the biggest point against match play is just that fact that you don't have to save your bad holes like uh, you don't have to take those those terrible scores with you beyond just oh it was a loss okay whatever um, and, and yeah, I mean, I do think like in spirit, when people talk about it, uh, and the way we think about it, it is like, oh, well it is more tactical because, you know, you're reacting to what the other person did and you're trying to kind of position yourself and you're tweaking the risk versus reward, but you're right. Like if you have holes that have, you know, very clear sort of like danger and a lot of those whistling straights holes did have that, um, that like. Yeah, you may as well just bomb it. And I think also Bryson was sort of trying to send messages with these things of almost like psychologically intimidate the opponent, you know, with the sheer it's like a shock and awe theory of golf. And like, I don't think that that like aside from Tiger Woods, again, at his peak where you could like hear the roars around the corner at Augusta and like you knew he did something and that messed with guys psychologically you don't really get that as much with um, with stroke play because you're all just kind of doing your own thing in different places around the course at the same time and just, you know, handling your own business is the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, match play is how a lot of people people just play. If you're playing with your, um, if you're, you know, buddies on the course, you, you know, you might just be playing for the whole whatever. And so there was that kind of element of like, the buddies on the on the course playing against the buddies from from Europe, you know, maybe that's fun in the Ryder Cup. I I don't love it overall though. All right, well that was a that was a get off my green <laughs> Ryder Cup style, uh, very fun. I guess go USA for for winning. Yay yay. All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.